I want to start off by just welcoming everybody. Thank you so much for coming. For those of you who are in person, appreciate that. God bless you. And for those of you who are joining us online, God bless you. And we hope you can make your way into a service also. It's always better in person. You get to see people, you get to talk to people, and it's not just a one-way conversation, right? And that's uh, really important to meet as the church of the living God here on earth. Let's all stand for a moment, and we're going to read together. Now, if you want to, you can for sure, um, you can actually read with me if you want, out loud, because I think it might help to some of you like myself, actually reading something, when I hear myself read it, it makes more sense to me. So you're welcome to join me. Let's go to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. The Bible says, Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a servant of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also because of the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to the very thing. Pay to all what is due to them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, respect to whom respect honor to whom honor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We stand in awe of all that you have done and are doing. And we are in great expectation of that which you will do in our lives. Now, God, I pray you open our hearts like you did Lydia's, open our minds like you did those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Allow us to see and understand all that you have planned and willed for us in this world in Jesus' name. And all those who love the Lord said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Today, we're going to start discussing um, things that are so very heavy on your heart and your mind. And as a pastor, I love to talk doctrine. And as you know, uh, my wife will tell you, we can sit around the table all the way until 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning and just talk about the scriptures I love talking about the Word of God. And I think that's what we should have done last night. We have neighbors who love to party. <laughs> and they did, not, they did not let up until 4 a.m. this morning. So, um, if you see, I go into like a haze and just stare <laughs> into nothing for a bit. Don't worry, I'll be back in a little bit. But I love to speak about doctrine and just discuss it. It's the most favorite thing in the world for me. But sometimes, we as a church family, we have to actually make sure 
that we look into scriptures in order to connect the dots between where we are at and what God, where we are in our culture, what we deal with in our culture, what, what's on people's hearts, what's on people's minds, what is pressing, and how do we navigate our way through these situations scripturally. So today we're going to discuss just that, those things that are heavy on our minds. And the question is, how do we, as Bible believers, respond to our secular government? How do you respond to our secular government? Romans chapter 13 that we just read clearly states that the governing authority is God's deacon. Civil authorities, including police officers, mayors, governors, congressmen, presidents, are God's servants responsible to bring justice to the evildoer. The government's responsibility is clearly laid out which is to punish the wicked, to protect the innocent. But, <laughs> what if the government becomes evil and starts protecting the wicked while punishing the innocent? Do I still have to submit to that kind of government? At what point is Romans 13 no longer applicable to me and to you? Do I decide to... No longer be compliant with my government when they elect a man to the White House named, let's say, Adolf Hitler? Or do I start non-compliance protesting before that day? If so, the question is when. If so, the question is when. You and I are privileged and I need to do this portion right here because I want to make sure you understand at least where my mind is at, at least where, where my heart's at and the way I view where we are at right now. I happen to believe we are in God's will and that's why I believe that you and I are privileged because I believe God is God over history. He is God over this increasingly complicated time in history. God is not only God over my future. He is God over my past. He says that He chose me before the foundations of the earth. That means He was God then over my life. He is God now. Imagine if He wasn't God right now. <laughs> imagine, imagine if there was some other God ruling and reigning right now. How would we ever know that our God will one day rule and reign again. No, He wouldn't. But God was God back then. He's God today. And He will be God forever. There's never a time and never a place He is not God. That means there's never a time and there's never a place where His will is not being established. He currently oversees our situation with divine wisdom and perfect justice. And you might go, the world's on fire. Yeah, God is overseeing this world with divine wisdom and perfect justice, causing all things, both good and evil, to work together for the good of those who are called according to His name, or called according to His purpose. All things work together for the good, good and evil. They all work together for the good. Those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes. Now many believe that Satan is wrecking havoc in the world today. They look at Afghanistan in horror, and in shock, 
They look at the southern border, the children, the sex trafficking, in disgust. They look at the spike in crime across the nation, the godless curriculums they are forcing down our children's throats. Somebody actually took part of that curriculum that they now, is, that they now just signed off on for, for us here in Illinois, for our elementary school kids. They put it on social media, <clears throat> and you won't believe, but it was flagged as porn. They look at 150 days ago, and my gas tank cost me $40 to fill my tank. Uh, now it costs $70, and we are concerned, can we keep up with where this seems to be going? Some are faced with being fired for not submitting to the COVID mandates, thinking that the government is violating their consciences, and what are they supposed to do? Because they need a job. So by looking at all of this evil, people are quick to believe that Satan is responsible for wreaking havoc. They bind him, they rebuke him, they cast him out, yet things seem to be the same. I was watching a video yesterday, a compilation of all the ministers who claim to be able to change the weather. Have you ever seen that? They speak to the storm. Have you ever heard about that? <laughs> So there's this woman, her name is Kat Carr. So she's like in the forefront of this. I know Copeland does that. They claim to be able to speak to the storms and the weather and just demand it to dissipate. And uh, they've been doing this for a long time. Every single hurricane, they do it. And yet. So there was, there's a big um, challenge put out there by a group of reformed men to all of those, uh, those weather, weather warriors, that's what they're called actually, weather warriors, Cat Carr being the number one. And if you go to a website, you will find that you can, for $25, purchase a weather warrior training kit where you too can speak to these storms. And so she has failed every single time uh, over the last five years, yet this year she's going at it again speaking at the storm before it hits the coast down in the south. So by looking at all of what people, what we are going through in this world, people say, well, the devil's wreaking havoc. They rebuke him, they bind him, they cast him out. Yet things seem to be getting worse. But I'm here to show you something very interesting about God today. Will our righteous... And holy God, continue to bless and protect a rebellious nation filled with sexual deviances, making it legal, pagan practices of sacrificing their babies at the altar of convenience, with no consequence ever? Really? God just looks at what's going on and... He does not frown because apparently God's no longer angry. Apparently God's, the war's over, all's good, no curse, no judgment, no retribution, no response from God except love, kindness, and everything that's good. Proverbs 26, 2 says, curses cannot hurt you unless you deserve them. 
You see, God is sovereign and in control over all. People go like, but, but, but God is good. And if God was in control, why all, why all of this bad? You see, King Saul was God's judgment on a rebellious Israel. Oftentimes, maybe every time, a nation receives from God who they deserve. So don't blame your dad when he disciplines you. When he brings the rod down on your behind, it's because you actually did that. <laughs> right? I always tell my son and daughter, do you realize this is actually your doing, not mine? <clears throat> so I feel the need to put the final nail in the coffin for all those who believe that the earth is under the control of Satan and believe that he is the God. But no, God is God, and Satan is God's Satan. Which means God is in power, God is in control, and God is the, in the driver's seat. I'm not saying there's no devil, and I'm not saying he doesn't deceive. I'm just saying God is in control. Why? Because the Bible says so. So I want to end that discussion scripturally right here before we move on, talking about how to deal with the government. Because... Oftentimes, you will look at your government and you will believe it's the devil and you, 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 it might just be God. See what I'm saying? 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted above. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. There it is. Job 12, 13 and 14. Wisdom and strength belong to God. Counsel and understanding are His. Whatever He tears down cannot be rebuilt. Whoever He imprisons cannot be released. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. There it is. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has prepared everything for His purpose. The Lord has prepared everything for His purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. There it is. Proverbs 69, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. And the saints said, Amen. Proverbs 16.33, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. He is God. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart's like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. You might say the president's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. The congress heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. The senate's heart is like channels of, the water, of water in the hands of the Lord. The governor's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. Ecclesiastes 7, 13, 14. Accept the way of God. Accept the way God does things. Accept the way God, accept His ways, His chosen ways. For who can straighten what He has made crooked? Hmm. Enjoy prosperity while you can, family. But when hard times strike, realize that both prosperity and hard times come from God.
There it is. Isaiah 40, verse 23. He reduces prison. He reduces. Watch this. This is huge. I read this. I immediately called Tina. And I said, Tina, look at this. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth irrational. Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I, God, make success and create disaster. I, Yahweh, do all these things. Daniel 2, verse 21. Now, it doesn't end, but I'm going to end with this one. Daniel 2, 21. World events are under His control. Let that sink in. <laughs> World events are under His control. He removes kings and sets others on their thrones. He establishes one king, kingdom, and then He dethrones it, and He replaces it with another. If you had to line up all the princes, presidents, counselors, and kings of the world, all the governors and all the senators, our Jesus, the Bible says, is king of all kings. You see, Jesus, not Caesar, is king. And if Jesus is king, then he's king over Caesar. God is in control. Now, I know you don't like that. But neither did Israel like it one time. Not one time did they like it when God reprimanded them. So if we as a people are going to repent, we should repent for actual biblical sins. Now, in our context today, on the one hand, <laughs> you know what? Um, so, that was the light part of today's message. <laughs> Here comes the heavy part. <laughs> no. no, I think that you're going to be very blessed. The greatest gift I can give anybody is, is scriptural clarity. Not a feeling, but a perspective. I, I can't give you anything. There's nothing I can do better. There's no better use of us as a family together than gaining scriptural clarity. Because when we gain scriptural clarity, we have biblical doctrine. And when you have biblical doctrine, you're actually hearing from God. When, in fact, you hear scriptures... Articulated in a way that is not biblical doctrine, then you're hearing the voice of the devil. Have you ever wondered what the voice of the devil sounds like? That wasn't it, but <laughs> the voice of Satan is it, it sounds almost exactly the same as scriptures. How did the snake come to Eve? Quoting what God had said. How did Satan come to Jesus? Quoting what the scriptures say. Does it not say you will not dash your foot against a stone? You know. So the best possible gift I can give is clarity of scriptures. 
So in our context, on the one hand, <clears throat> we have Christians, pastors, and church leaders encouraging us to submit ourselves to Romans chapter 13. Obey yourselves to civil authorities, it says, and governing authorities, doing all they mandate every single time. Whatever they say, do it. That's what Christians, pastors, and church leaders are saying today. Then, however, on the other hand, we have Christians asking, well, at what point do we draw the line with our government? Where we simply say, no more compliance from here on in this regard. What are we to make of this difference in belief? Are we, say, are we to say yes to our government every time? If not, if not, at what point do we say no? This is far enough, no further. Where is that line? That's the question we have to deal with today. Secondly, on the one hand, we have people saying, if you love your neighbor, close your church doors, stay home and mitigate the risk factor. On the other hand, however, we have Christians asking, doesn't God clearly state in His Word that He requires us to meet as a church? I mean, it's in the name church. The name church is the, na is the word ecclesia or ecclesia, which means a public gathering. So, you know, what are we supposed to do with those differences? Those opposing beliefs and perspectives. Thirdly, on the one hand, we have people saying, compassion for your neighbor means shut everything down. Even if the economy crashes, just save a life at all costs. Shut it all down, everybody. While others are saying, God commanded us to go and be fruitful to subdue the earth without reservation. Jesus commanded us, occupy until I come, without reservation. The Apostle Paul commanded, he who does not work shall not eat, without reservation. What are we supposed to do with this moral dilemma? We're hearing two messages. Are we to comply with the government and shut our churches down for the sake of mitigating a risk? Or are we to ignore the next CDC mandate and keep the economy running? What are we supposed to do? You see, the dilemma we find ourselves in only gets more and more complicated. And people ask questions like, what would Jesus do? I mean, what would he do? Would he have submitted himself to the CDC mandates and wear a mask, or would he not be wearing a mask? Uh, would he be supporting sending kids back to school, or would he support keeping them out of school at home? However, things don't stay there. Of course, they become even hotter to a boiling point in regards to the unspoken V word. I need not call it the, I need to call it the big V, and I don't have to explain as to why. But what do we make of this? What do we make of this? How do we as Bible believers respond to our government and its mandates? You see, things <clears throat> have evolved over the past 18 months. We've been in, in this 18 months now, and the argument has become more pointed. The disagreement has become more fueled, believe it or not. Both fear and anger have escalated. Families are arguing. Friendships are breaking up. Some churches have closed. Others have split over this issue. And unity among many church leaders who used to have great fellowship have now been erased completely. Completely. Over the last week, 
I have been contacted by a handful of individuals, some of who come to our church here, all of whom are in dire straits for this reason. They have been forced into bending the knee to governmental mandates to take that jab and so act against their own consciences. And if they do not, they lose their jobs within the next two months. So I ask you, where is the line? That if and when crossed, the believers should say, we must obey God rather than men. At what point do you say that I must obey God rather than men? Everybody goes, well, you know, one day, if they put a gun to my head and they say, deny Jesus, I will say, I will not. And I believe I will have the power to say it then. But all the way until then, I'm not going to stand for hardly anything. <laughs> Or somebody might say, actually, no, 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 Jacques, that's not me. Long before we get there, I will be the Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I will be the guy that says, this is not God, whatever it is. I'm not saying it's necessarily the one issue, a mask or anything. But at what point do you say, this far, no further? Violating my conscience, violating what I believe in about scriptures, not going any further. Um, where is your line? You see, some men of old, they drew lines. Consider Daniel. When his governing authorities demanded, he stopped praying to God. He publicly disregarded those mandates, resulting in him being thrown into the lion's den, as we know. Consider Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were given clear mandates by their governing authorities, they, they publicly disregarded those mandates, resulting in them being thrown in the fiery furnace, as we know. Consider the Apostle Paul, the very man who wrote Romans chapter 13, who says, obey the Roman, obey the civil law. Why was he in prison so much? Consider him. He was given specific mandates from the Roman government and ended up in prison, ultimately got beheaded. Why? For not obeying or adhering to his governing authorities' mandates. So there was a line for Paul. I mean, he said, submit yourselves, and then he goes and lands in prison for not submitting himself. Right? So where's that line for him? Consider the Apostle Peter who was directly, very clearly warned to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, his response, and I quote, we must obey God rather than man. So we have many examples throughout scriptures of men who ignored the mandates. And we have Jesus ignoring mandates from spiritual leaders when it came to like the Sabbath and stuff like that. So the question remains, at what point should a Christian draw the line with civil authorities? It's almost like a fearful question to ask, especially publicly. Because, you know, maybe it's my imagination, but sometimes you just feel the darts coming your way. Oh, how dare you? Question. How dare you? Question the government from the pulpit. I'm not questioning, I'm asking you, where's the line? <laughs> History tells us you have to have a line. 
Because if you don't, you know what happens. So I hope to clearly answer the question over the next couple of weeks. And uh, so today I just wanted to give an opening, and then next week we'll continue. Just kidding. That was a joke, okay? <laughs> For starters, however, we have to find the true spiritual view of authority. If, you, if, if my question to you is, at what point are you going to say no more compliance to this authority? My question has to be, before you can make that decision, you have to first establish, well, what is authority? What is it? And who is it? Or have we allowed certain people to put themselves into positions of authority with us that God never offered them or gave them or called them to? Right? Very often, that happens. Give an example. My wife. I remember very clearly, Tina and I just started courting. And uh, I was joking, I jokingly said to her, uh, you have to obey me. She goes, I don't. I'm like, are you kidding me? The Bible says so. She goes, no, the Bible says husbands have to be obeyed. Wives, obey your husbands. And I am not your wife. I'm like, okay. <laughs> All I'm saying is oftentimes people put themselves into positions with other people that God never gave them. He never qualified. And so we have to qualify a scriptural view of authority. The Bible teaches that there are three spheres of public authority. Three spheres of public authority. The Bible clearly gives us. Now, I know that secularists are not going to agree, and that's okay. By the way, they don't agree with almost anything you believe. All right? But that doesn't mean that you don't believe that. The Bible teaches that there are three spheres of public authority. The first is the family, the second is the church, and the third is the state. All three of those authorities established by God. Those positions are to be honored, those positions are to be revered, and those positions are positions of responsibility. The reason somebody has authority is because they have a set of responsibilities. I am the authority in my home, which means I have certain responsibilities nobody else in my home has. Does it make sense? So when you have a lot of responsibility, it means you have a lot of authority. And oftentimes you'll have, you have governments grow large because the larger they become, the more authoritative they become. So we have to see, okay, what is from a biblical perspective the limitations of these three spheres of authority? Because if we can find their responsibilities, we can find the level of authority. Make sense? So, there are also other subcategories of authority. For instance, employers, business owners, they have levels of authority. School teachers, principals, the lady at the DMV and the post office, <laughs> these people have authority. But these positions of authority are subcategories of the three basic spheres of authority, the family, the church, and the state. The first sphere of 
authority God established is, of course, the family unit, Adam and Eve, which is the ministry of food, warmth, which is accommodation, welfare, which is health care, and education. I'm going to write these down as we discuss them. So we have the family. That is the first. Entity of authority and the responsibilities we're going to find in scriptures. The Apostle Paul established the authority structure within the family unit when he wrote Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. He says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. So there is very clear who is the head of the household. It is the husband. Then in Ephesians 5, verse 28 and 29, it says, So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife <clears throat> loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Nourishes and cherishes it. Now the word nourish literally means feed. To feed, to provide food. The word cherish because you're, you're being nourished by a food that you eat, right? But number two, the word cherish literally means to keep warm. To keep warm. Providing food and housing and clothing. So, we see that this is the husband's job over the wife, and therefore obviously also over the children, which is food. Um, let me see how I'm going to write this. Um... Um, warmth, which is clothes and a roof. And I'm going to draw the picture of a roof so I can fit it in. <laughs> so far, we see the responsibility of their husband as he has in the household, which articulates or outlines his level of authority. It is very important to understand that God did not put the responsibility of providing food and housing and clothing under the jurisdiction of the government. This is my point. But under the jurisdiction of the husband, not the government. Can you see that? 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own... And especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That is 1 Timothy 5, 8. So in other words, the one who does not, the husband who does not fill the shoes or take responsibility in order to practice his authority in his home, he is worse than an unbeliever. If you think about, you know, the, the, single, the single families, the single moms, broken families in our community, you will just realize how many unbelievers we truly have. <laughs> so in this context, Paul was saying, when a widow no longer has any family to care for her, then the responsibility of feeding that widow 
keeping her warm, clothing and housing, and for her well-being, responsibility for her well-being then falls upon the church, not the government. So this is very clear that when there's a widow and she is growing older, she has no means of supporting herself, then she has a family that picks up those responsibilities. They are in authority over that situation. The family of that widower then is supposed to provide food, provide warmth, nourishes and cherishes her. How does he nourish her? By That family gives her food. That family gives her warmth and other clothes. In other words, clothes and, and a place to stay. And that family is supposed to care for her well-being. Her well-being. So this is interesting that Paul said this. Because well-being equals health care. Health. So now we see if a family is now responsible for the widow in their family, if they have to take authority over the situation and become responsible for her food, for her clothes, for her home, and also for her health, obviously they're doing it for themselves also. Are you following where I'm going with this? If that widow has no family to care for her, those responsibilities fall upon the church, not on the government. That is not their jurisdiction. They have no authority there. They have no responsibility there. Therefore, they have no way and means of making laws, mandates, and rules. Finally, we note that the Bible explicitly charges fathers with the duty of providing a thoroughly biblical education for his children, a thoroughly biblical education for his children. We're still talking about the family, and the father is the head of that family because he's responsible for everything. He's therefore in authority over everything. You cannot make somebody responsible for something while taking away the authority to be responsible with what you gave them. You know how impossible it is if you are working on a work site and they make you responsible over four people, but you have no, no authority over those four people. How would that work? I mean, I'm responsible for them, but I, have, I can't tell them what to do. No, you can't tell them what to do, but you're responsible for them. How would that ever work? No, you have the authority over what you're responsible for. Make sense? And that's why the husband has authority over what he's responsible for. And now, number four, he is responsible for educating his own children. He's responsible. He doesn't have to be the teacher, but he's responsible for education. I know this is a little tedious, but we have to clear our minds regarding this so that we can know where to draw lines, where to say, do I have to obey that mandate or not? The question is, do you have the right to give me that mandate? Because you have religious exemption for many things. Here in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 and 9, the Bible says, These words, God's words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart, speaking to the father of the house, and you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, 
and when you get up, you shall also tie them as a sign to your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall also write them on the doorposts of your house. In other words, your kid's going to have to be able to read, right? You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In Ephesians 6 verse 4, we are told, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Training and admonition here literally means to counsel and to culture. To counsel and to culture them. Raise them up. Train them. So in other words, the father is very clearly in the Old Testament and the New Testament responsible, therefore authority, has authority over the education of their own children. They will be held accountable to, by God for how they train their kids. The government will not be. If I am your employer, and I say to you, you have, you have all these duties, responsibilities, and, they, and you have five employees that are going to help you accomplish this. You are responsible for all of it. Therefore, you have authority over those five people. Go ahead. I'm coming back in a year. I'm going to see what's happened. When I come back in a year, who do I hold accountable to for the outcome of that company? The person I gave authority to. And God gives authority to the father of this authority structure called the family and therefore the father will be held accountable before God for what God placed within his jurisdiction he's not going to be able to point to the government and say well they didn't feed my children no you have to do that so training and admonition the training and the admonition of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord. So the counsel of the Lord and the culture of the Lord ought to be trained to our children. And it's the father's job to do so. So the conclusion is God has clearly directed the husband to be the authority of the family unit, who is therefore responsible to provide food, warmth, <coughs> well-being, and education for the entire family. And since these four areas of responsibility fall within the jurisdiction of the family unit, guess what? They naturally fall outside the jurisdiction of the state. And therefore, the family is never required to comply with the state on matters that the state has no authority over. Amen. Yes, according to Romans chapter 13, I am to obey the government. On the issues, the government has scriptural jurisdiction over me. Let's drive this idea to a ridiculous extreme. And let's see how true this is. Okay, let's say, for instance, I'll, I'll just use Andre. Is that okay, Andre? Can I use an example? <laughs> Imagine, I don't know Governor Pritzker's name, but let's say Governor Pritzker calls you up one day, and he starts his conversation by asking you to report back to him on how often you take your wife on a date. And you go, sir, I take her on a date four times a month, once a week. Every Thursday night is our date night. He goes, no, uh-uh. I'm not happy about this. He goes, it's too much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to require you, Andre, to cut that in half, okay? 50% only. You cannot date your wife four times a month. You can only date her twice a month. You get that? What's, what's your response going to be, Andre? 
That's exactly what I wrote. This is none of your business. Click. Click. <laughs> none of your business, Mr. Pritzker. It is outside, for those of you watching, he's the governor of Illinois. It is outside of his jurisdiction, outside of his sphere. Dating your wife has got nothing to do with him. God didn't ask him to get involved. He didn't give him a position. He didn't call him to that. He has no, he, he has no, he's not allowed to have an opinion. His opinion on my dating life is him judging me. You see, I'm, I judge people when I scratch in areas I, I have no I have no business going. None of your business, sir. I respect you as governor, and I respect all the responsibilities God gave you. I believe you have authority over those, and I will agree to them, as long as they don't require me to sin. But if it's outside of your jurisdiction, outside of your, your sphere of authority, therefore... I'm not required to obey you. And if you tell me to stop dating my wife every week, I will very happily um, date her six times that next month just to make the point. Because that's a ridiculous scenario, of course, but that proves the point. Can you see what I'm saying? Biblically speaking, when it comes to food, you can drink with a plastic straw if you want. Your kids can drink whatever, you know, however they want that thing. You can offer it to them. It's got nothing to do with anybody else. When it comes to housing, when it comes to clothing, Father, it is your responsibility. When it comes to well-being, which means health, it is a family issue. When it comes to education, it is a family issue, not a state issue. It is outside of the authority of the government, and we are not scripturally bound to obey authority that God didn't establish within that jurisdiction. Second, the sphere of the authority in the local church. The local church established by God and gave the church authority. Jesus actually said that when he gave the Great Commission. He says, now all authority has been given to me, now you go. Jesus gives the church leadership the authority to minister the Word of God. He gives the church leadership the authority to minister the sacraments, which is baptism and communion, and to exercise church discipline. In other words, to hold church members accountable before God. In other words, I mean, it's 1 Timothy 3, 1, 15, Titus 1, the whole chapter, Matthew 28, 18 and 20, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and Titus 3, verse 10. The Bible gives... The church leadership, which means the elders and the deacons, but mainly the elders, which you can also exchange it with the word bishop or shepherd, but there ought to be more elders than just one. And most churches like ourselves is, are working towards that position or that place. But the elders have been given by God the authority to minister the word as we are today and every Sunday, and that's why it's important for you to be here, minister the sacraments. That's why you should be here the first Sunday of every month, which we do communion. You should be baptized. If you haven't yet been baptized, make sure to request us to baptize you. And, of course, when there is unrepentant sin in a person's life, it is the responsibility of the church to actually correct that with the person. 
And if that person remains unrepentant, then the Bible is very clear they ought no longer to be a member in that church. It's called church discipline, something we can't stomach in the West. <laughs> well, then I'll just find another church. All right. But that is the authority given to the local church. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your spiritual leaders. Do what they tell you. Their work is to watch over your souls. And they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. So the conclusion here is, we obey because God says to obey. However, we obey only to the extent God says for us to obey. Anything beyond that would be disobedience. Let me say that again. We obey the authorities God tells us to obey. We obey them. But we also distinguish in this way that we obey them to the extent in which God told us to obey them in. Anything beyond that is disobeying God. Does that make sense? So in many ways, we're in trouble and we need to get out of that trouble, right? You might have asked, well, why, is, why are Christians so anti-socialism? This is why. Because... Because we abdicate the responsibilities God gave us. We hand over the responsibilities God gave. We become irresponsible and we throw away the authority God gave us. He will hold us accountable to that He gave us authority over. And we go like, well, nah, we're going to let the state do this instead. We're not going to get away with it. Now, if you've ever wondered why Christians are so allergic to socialism, this is why. Has this clarified any of this for any of you? Yeah? yeah. Alright. Some of you are like... <laughs> the third sphere of responsibility or authority is of course the civil government and we are going to develop that next week. But let me say this, thus far it has been clear to us that according to Romans chapter 13, that, the, that God has given civil government authority to carry the sword. God did give them the sword or the instrument of death, capital punishment, guns. God has given that to them to punish who? The criminal. <laughs> the criminal. Now, if one of them become criminals, the government's responsible to punish the criminal. Even if he has a position within the government, the police, the Senate, whoever it is. Right? And so God has given the government the authority to carry the sword, to punish the criminal, and to protect the innocent. To do this effectively, we have to pay taxes unto that end. That's why we pay taxes. So we may be protected, or the innocent may be protected. That's why. The innocent. So next week we will continue studying the sphere of authority given to the civil governments by God. And the authority doesn't just end there. It's beyond that. They have to bring justice. They have to receive taxes in order to do this. And we have, uh, we have these clearly articulated. And when we have these clearly articulated, we'll be very clear as to what areas in life we are to obey the government in. I am very interested in clarifying this, at least for myself, 
and I know for you too, but also beyond just explaining the, the civil government's sphere of influence, responsibility, and authority given to them by God, which we have to obey, lest they ask us to sin, we're going to talk about that next week. Also, next week we will deal with the relationship between risk and fear. The moment there seems to be an increase in risk, immediately fear increases, and sometimes it spins right out of control, or we fear what we shouldn't, and we don't fear what we should. So we're going to talk about the relationship between risk and fear. And how to test these things. How to test these things. When I, when I started, my New Year's resolution was simple. It was, God, I want to have not a weak conscience that feels guilty for stuff I ought not to feel guilty for. But I want to have a sensitive conscience so that I can feel guilty for the stuff I should guilt, feel guilty for. My example I always use is some people, you know, they, they'll drop the Eucharist or they'll drop the Bible and they'll be shocked. I mean, they'll... They'll be filled with fear. They drop the Bible. Oh my gosh, I dropped the Bible. But they have no conviction for never reading it. You see, so they have conviction for the wrong things, and they have no conviction for the right thing. So that was my prayer to God in the beginning of this year. But in that also, I also believe in God that, I, that, that He will help me never fear what I should not fear, but only fear what I should fear. How about if there's a congregation that fears God and not man? that fears, the Bible says, the God who can throw you in hell forever. <laughs> How about us fear hell <laughs> rather than an inconvenient few years here on this earth? So we're going to talk about how to test all things by use of critical thinking. Have you realized that there's no such thing anymore as critical thought? Critical thinking is no longer part of the narrative. Deductive reasoning is no longer part of the narrative. Inductive reasoning, we've never heard of it anymore. All these things are gone. Everybody now only has a thought based on how they feel. So we're going to use critical thinking and we're going to talk about how to assess things. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, But examine everything. But examine everything. But that is a command. You ought to examine everything in life. Hold firmly to that which is good. So by use of our critical thinking, we will test some of the fears, the risks, and the responses. The fears, the risks, and the responses that we deal with today in this world. And um, I believe that we're going to get direction from God in that way. Amen? Amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the Word today? Yeah. Amen. So don't miss next week. I believe that things will become clearer and clearer because we do have to obey the government. I'm not a rebel. And I don't want you to think I'm a rebel. And we have not been called to revolt. But we are Protestants. <laughs> the word Protestant comes from the word protest. And we do protest when we are told to disobey God in any way. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And I thank you, Father God, that you give us wisdom, guidance, soften our hearts, Father God. Give us clarity of thought. Clarity of thought. 
allow us to think as you do, allow us to see as you do, allow us to perceive as you do, allow us, Father God, to value that which you value in Jesus' name. Let us never lose sight. Let us never lose sight that this is about you, not us. That we do not fight for us, but for you. We contend for the faith. And we thank you, God, that you give us the strength, the boldness, and the courage to stand for what we must. And give us the willingness to sacrifice as we should. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.